As early as the mid to late 80s, Jez San knew that he wanted to bring a space combat game to the Nintendo Entertainment System. But there was one big problem. The NES would need a little help to process the wireframe graphics that San had in mind. And on top of that, his company, Argonaut Games, was just a little company with no detection to the behemoth company that was Nintendo. So San decided to do something drastic to get their attention. He had his team hack their Nintendo Game Boy. It was a gamble that ended up paying off, and it led the team at Argonaut Games down a path that resulted in the creation of Star Fox, which was released for the Super Nintendo in February of 1993. Today we're going to tell you the story of Star Fox, its development studio Argonaut Games, and the technology of the Super FX chip that went into making it such a unique game. So join us and get ready to do a barrel roll as we take today's trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you happy and well. Hello, and welcome to the 130th episode of the Video Game History Podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story about one topic relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game, console, a person, technology, so on and so forth. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Today, we're all going to learn about Star Fox. Originally released for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System on February 21st, 1993. That'd be 30 years ago? Mm-hmm. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by that little voice co-host, the slippy toad to my own Fox McCloud. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, how's it feel being compared to an anthropomorphic frog? Motherfucker, we all know I'm more like Falco than Slippy. Come on, I am not useless. Get the fuck out of here. I have use. Slippy is... Ugh. Anyone who's played Star Fox knows Slippy. No. And, and, and also joining us today, I guess he's the peppy hair to my Fox McCloud. He's returning guest... It's Ryan Shepard. Ryan. Hey, everybody. Are you the hair? I'm honored to be the peppy hair. You're honored to be the peppy hair? I'm the oldest. Oh, well, yeah, actually. Yeah, that is true. That sure is me. very, very true. No, it's definitely not you. More more grizzled, I'd say. <laughs> Experienced, for sure. All right, Ryan, I'm going to start with you. What are you up to in gaming these days? What are you playing? Well, I have my hands on the shiny new Metroid Prime Remastered. Oh, you did You did end up picking it up. Is it everything you hoped it would be? It is amazing, yes. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. I, I have my eye on it. It. Uh, I still got to do Dread, though. I. It, it's a tough call for me, like the next one, because my gaming plate is, is ever floweth, overfloweth. Uh, Dread or Remastered? I feel like I kind of want to do Dread because it's a new story and Prime I've played, you know? If you haven't done Dread, definitely do Dread. Yeah, yeah I think Dread will be the next one. Rob, how about you? Well, this week has been another light week in gaming. So uh, it's your Melvor Idol, RuneScape, 
and a game or two of Rocket League. But yeah, no, not a whole lot. How about yourself, Dave? I I do believe it's been late for me. Rocket League Malvor. I think I logged into RuneScape and killed one thing. Woo! And then I've played a few levels of Hi-Fi Rush this week. All right, moving on. Ryan, you familiar with the original Star Fox? I am, but... Uh, but you have more... You played one of the others more, correct? Star Fox 64 is near and dear to my to my gaming heart. And Rob, you just got done saying the exact same thing to me, didn't you? Indubitably. So... Before I even go into that, I'm going to ask one one more question, and we're going to touch base on we'll we'll touch base on Star Fox 64 and Star Fox 2. We'll kind of lump them all into into one today. Would you say at this point, because we know that these characters have kind of more so taken a life of them own their own through the Star our Smash Brothers franchise, that maybe we've played them more in Smash Brothers than we have in Star Fox at this point? No. You don't think so? I wasn't real big on using Falco or Fox. Um, I mean, I played them a little bit, but the amount of time that I put into Star Fox 64 uh, definitely exceeds the amount of playtime that I would have with either of them in Smash. Fair enough. Ryan, what about you? That's a tough call because, like Rob was saying, I've played so much Star Fox 64, but that was a long time ago. And there's been a lot of opportunities to get lots of Smash Brothers in. Yeah, see, I was thinking about that as I was writing this episode, and it's a it's a tough one. I honestly think that at this point, I've probably played more Smash as these characters than um, than the game. Now, my familiarity is the exact opposite of you guys. I did not have a Nintendo 64. I did not play Star Fox 64 at all, but I did have this one and i played a lot of this one but coincidentally we're all going to be familiar with the same game and we're going to talk about that shortly but really this story starts back in 1978 when at the age of 12 jess san was gifted his first computer it was a trs 80 rob in case you didn't know that was a radio shack computer ah uh, thank you i didn't TR- know that. trs literally stands for tandy radio shack what's tandy a company that made computers. Oh. So Tandy Radio Shack 80 from his father. Nassan had be- first become interested in video game development while playing MUDs. Uh, if you've listened to our podcast in the past, uh, specifically, we covered MUDs in, Rob, your favorite game, RuneScape, the RuneScape episode. Um, MUDs are the precursor to modern day MMOs. So as a teenager in high school, Hassan founded Argonaut Software as a way to get software consulting jobs with larger companies. Initially, he was working for on security systems for companies like British Telecom and uh, Acorn. Acorn? Acorn. Acorn. Acorn was a computer company. Okay. We've, we've briefly talked about them in the past, but I've never delved into them too much. So, But in 1984 he decided to try his hand at video game development. That year in particular was a pretty good year for him, actually. Uh, For one, uh, Jez became a wizard, which was another name for an admin in the Essex mud, which we know just as mud 
which was the world's very first online multiplayer role-playing game. So he was one of those fancy wizard people that guided other people into the magical world of mud. He nice. also writes, uh, and that's pretty cool to be able to say that you were an admin on the very first online MMO. I mean, that's a, that's a thing, you know? Oh, for sure. Also in 1984, San co-wrote a book about the Sinclair, Sinclair QL called Quantum Theory. Rob, we just talked about the Sinclair QL last week when we were talking about... Uh, it was the random computer that they tried to make Bandersnatch for in the middle. Yeah, that's what it was. And also in 1984, San published his first video game. It was a game called Skyline Attack for the Commodore 64. Uh, anyone ever heard of this game before? Anyone? Nope. nope. Yeah, me either. It was a side-scrolling shooter in which you're tasked with defending very realistic cities from alien invasion. Uh, it was received pretty well because it had noticeably more realistic buildings and landmarks than other games of the time. It had a, a I mean... I mean, we're talking 2D sprite graphics, but it had a recognizable Eiffel Tower. Games up until that point mostly had just like, you know, squares with more squares for windows and doors. But really, it was his next game that kind of started this whole, you know, this whole story. In 1986, Argonaut Software developed a game called Star Glider. It was a first person combat flight simulator that was rendered with wireframe graphics. Now, really up until this point, Argonaut software was just Jez, but Starglider was a hit and it sold hundreds of thousands of copies in which he reportedly made about two pounds per copy. And so that was a lot of money. And he used this money to start hiring other employees, which really kind of is when Argonaut software, you know, kind of blossomed became a thing. Now, Starglider was originally developed for the Amiga and Atari ST, the success of Starglider led San to hire other development studios to port the game to other platforms. Fun little side note, Argonaut Software, in case you don't know the reference, is from Jason and the Argonauts, and he got the name, which is his name, Jez San, Jez San, Jason, Jason and the Argonauts. That's where he got the name from. Not relevant. I just thought I would tell you that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Rainbird Games ported the game to IBM-compatible PCs in the ZX Spectrum. Solid Images produced versions for the Commodore 64 and Apple IIGS, but like so many other gamers in the late 80s, us included, Ryan and I, San had his eyes on the Nintendo Entertainment System. I, that's not an assumption on my part. You're definitely a Nintendo kid, aren't you? You're still a Nintendo kid. That's such a stupid question for you, Ryan. Born and raised. I know, you're still a Nintendo kid. Like, that's, that's stupid. So, the team mocked up a prototype using a, I think it was an Amiga computer, uh, and they called it NES Glider, which simulated what they wanted to do in putting this game onto an NES. But, they wanted to match the wireframe graphics. They wanted to make it look as good. And so, in order to do so, they would have had to have an added boost from additional hardware, like a chip, for instance, which would allow for awesome 3D graphics on the NES. But there was really one problem at this point. Argonauts was just a tiny British software developer that has really only made one game, and Nintendo 
was i mean nintendo at this point they were like one of the biggest names if not the biggest name in gaming so how do you get them to notice you now if you've been listening to our podcast for any length of time in our mini stories about nintendo games you know that the best way to get nintendo's attention is to hurt their pocketbook because nintendo is all about the money so argonaut put themselves in front of Nintendo in a rather ballsy way. They showed Nintendo that it was possible to defeat the copyright protection on their handheld console, the Nintendo Game Boy. Now, in a later interview, Jess-san recalled how they did it. He said, They had the Nintendo logo drop down from the top of the screen, and when it hit the middle, a bootloader would check to see if it was in the right place. The game would only start if the word was correctly in the place it was supposed to be in the ROM. So if anyone wanted to produce a game without Nintendo's permission, they would be claiming to use the word Nintendo without a licensed trademark, and therefore Nintendo would be in a position to sue them for trademark infringement. That's pretty ingenious, actually, since that was just becoming a thing then, you know? Oh, yeah, it is. It's insidious. It, it, I mean, it is. The team at Argonauts figured out that with just a resistor and a capacitor, one cent's worth of components, that they could beat the protection. So basically, the system read the word Nintendo twice. It read it once to print the screen on the boot up, and it read it again to see if if it was in the correct location before starting the game cartridge. And that was a mistake on Nintendo's part, because the first time that it popped up Nintendo they used those devices to get it to return Argonauts on the screen instead. But on the second check, that capacitor and resistor powered up, so Nintendo was actually what what the machine read itself, and the game booted up perfectly. So they were able to just subvert it with nothing, which is just so damn clever. Any kind of system hacking is just incredibly complex, more so nowadays maybe than... uh using pennies back in the day well i mean you're right but it's just so fascinating that all they need to do was like literally (laughs) you know the just really basic electrical components to fake that the word nintendo was where it was supposed to be and that's all it took to hack the game boy that's that's it that's it well it's just it's comes down to how much simpler the technology was i mean you're talking you know a couple chips here and there as opposed to you know what they have now billions of transistors inside of one small area i mean very true very true it's night and day so that pennies you have to multiply that by a million so now you're you know thousand dollars to make a decent which obviously it's not a good comparison but definitely takes a lot more work to get the same amount of effort very true now the company had come across this because obviously they had wanted to develop for nintendo but development kits were expensive and hard to come by so the team basically hacked one together using a Game Boy and uh, a Tetris cartridge. They opened up the Tetris cartridge and they like soldered wires to it, to the console with a custom made circuit board in the middle that allowed them to write custom, like write and upload custom code through, through it. And that was basically their dev kit, a Game Boy and a, and a Tetris cartridge. Whoa. Isn't that kind of fun? That, that, that's, I mean, that's how they did things back then, you know? Because they couldn't get their hands on an actual one. I don't think you can get a... Well, 
I say you can't get away with that, but I mean, you don't even need a dev kit to d- develop for consoles anymore. So once they had their hacked dev kit, they tasked one of their developers, Dylan Cuthbert, with creating a, a 3D engine for the Game Boy. You know, NES Glider really didn't become a thing. You know, they, they didn't know what to do with it back when they made it. That would have been like... Star Glider was, what, 84, 86? Star Glider 2 would have been 88, roughly. So in, in the meantime, they had made this NES Glider demo, but they, they couldn't figure out how to get in front of Nintendo. So they're trying all this other stuff in the meantime, you know? Now, Star Glider 2 was 1988, and the biggest difference between Star Glider and its sequel was that the second game had filled polygon graphics and not just wireframe. In fact, Starglider 2 was one of the earliest, not the earliest, but one of the earliest 3D polygon games. So when Dylan was tasked with creating a 3D engine for the Game Boy, he created it in the style of these earlier games, Starglider and more specifically Starglider 2. And what he created was a rough space combat simulator for the Nintendo Game Boy. So in 1990, they walked into the Consumer Electronics Show and they basically had something now that could work with Nintendo's technology in terms of subverting it. And they had something that they could show of what they could do with Nintendo's technology once it was given to them. And they took it to the most senior person they could find at the show. And admittedly, they were impressed um you know it's ballsy but it worked out in their favor um wouldn't be the first time we've heard of developers you know um kind of presenting someone something like this on a whim at at one of the consumer electronics shows uh it's worked out in most of the stories worked out here because the team was invited to kyoto japan and nintendo expressed the fact that they were very impressed with their work on 3d games such as Star Glider and Star Glider 2, and they asked them to work on three games with them. Now, at this point, Argonauts, there's a lot of things happening, right? So the Game Boy demo, for starters, was fleshed out into an entire Game Boy game. Now, this game was released only in Japan in 1992, and it's a space combat simulator called X, and it was developed by both Nintendo and members of argonaut and it's really only one of maybe two or three game boy games that have actual 3d graphics i think there's only two i'm giving myself a little bit of wiggle room with three but there's not a lot at all that that have actual 3d graphics it's modeled after star glider it's a game in which you protect your planet from aliens it was slated to be released in the united states under the title lunar chase But when it was presented to Nintendo of America, um, they declined it because they felt that a space combat simulator was too advanced for a console that was meant for children, which is how they perceived the Game Boy in the United States. You ever heard of X before, either of you? I haven't. I I didn't even know. Okay, what X going to give it to you? Is that where you're going? Well, I was going to say, it's it's also a name for ecstasy. 
when people call it X. X marks the spot. He's also the leader of the, uh, you know, professor. He's pr- the professor. Professor X. Oh, what <laughs> yeah. about what about Mega Man X? Oh yeah, there you go. So I've definitely heard of X, just not in this context. Not not the game X. Not the Final game Fantasy. X. Final Fantasy X. There's a good one. That's you know, I guess anytime Roman numerals are involved, X is in there somewhere. If if you have to count up to ten. Um, yeah, I had never heard of X. I didn't even know that there were 3D games for the, the Game Boy. It's really fascinating to me to know that one, if not two, exists. Also, this story, and we're going to learn another one, has a lot of Nintendo making really stupid game decisions for really stupid reasons. I don't want to release a game for the Game Boy because it's too advanced for children. What kind of bullshit is that? Well, they didn't think that us grown-ups would want to play games. That's a good point, actually. Just a business decision. It's like, well, no one's going to buy it, so why put it out? Yeah. So, yep, well, yep. misguided though it may be. Yep. Now, X wasn't the only thing that Argonauts brought to the table with this relationship. You know, now that now that the relationship with Nintendo was formed, it was time to bring back the NES Glider demo. Oh. So, they showed it to Nintendo, and this is 1990. So, of course, 91 would be the Super Nintendo. So Nintendo asked them to consider making the game for their up-and-coming Super Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, San was honest with them from the get-go. As impressive as NES Glider was, it was never going to get any better unless they were able to make custom hardware to allow the Super NES to process 3D graphics better. This was, after all, the idea that they had as far back as NES Glider. They always prototyped on a PC and worked out the details later, and they knew that those details included that the consoles needing a little bit of help. So they took this concept to Nintendo and said, we, we can't do it without some custom hardware. Nintendo agreed, and they tasked the team at Argonaut Games with working on custom hardware to assist with game development. So the team at Argonaut reached out to some chip designers they knew and they started working on a project called Super Mario FX and then simply called uh, Mario at one point. Now Mario, other than being Nintendo's mascot, in this case stands for Mathematical Argonaut Rotation and Input Output. It ended up being a chip that they designed to work with this game. Now, fun fact, the first run of these chips uh, in Star Fox, since we're talking about Star Fox today, they actually say Mario Chip 1 printed on them. Basically, Mario Chip, which we now know as the Super FX chip, is a graphical support unit that was added to Super Nintendo cartridges to allow the Super Nintendo to play more advanced 2D and 3D graphics than it was normally capable of. Ryan, do you remember any of the hype around the Super FX chip? Absolutely. Uh, first of all, I got to give props to the acronym team. They did a stand-up job there with the Mario. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, it, I'm not exaggerating. You can go online look at a picture. All most of the copies of Star Fox, the chip in them, because there there's different generations of Super FX. The first generation, literally, pr- the print on it is Mario Chip One, which I I, I really like. 
it was a thing, wasn't it? Like magazines and television commercials and yeah, like power, the commercials. It was, you know, it definitely propped up as, the, you know, kind of a, you know, almost, you know, semi next gen advancement. No, seriously. Well, so let's, let's talk about the super FX chip for a second. Now it, it literally, it pretty much does what a graphics card does for us in a computer. It takes some of the graphical brunt off the CPU, the, the computer itself. To be in all honestly, this is a fact. The Super FX chip is actually the first 3D graphics accelerator that was built into any consumer product. Nowadays, okay. a lot of things have 3D graphics accelerators. Your phone has a 3D graphics accelerator, basically, you know, but at the time, that was unheard of, and this is the first time anyone ever did it. The Super FX chip itself was so powerful that the team at Argonaut often joked that the SNEX was just a box to hold their Super FX chip. And they weren't wrong. The, just to put it into perspective, the clock speed on the processor that was built in the Super Nintendo was 3.58 megahertz. The Super FX chip was clocked with a 21.4 megahertz signal. So that's what? Seven times as much? Roughly six point something times, right? Yeah. Math. The math checks out. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> y'all are, I'm not the math guy in this group, so. Um, yep. And, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> and before anyone catches me, Yes, I'm aware 21.4 megahertz was not the case for Star Fox, which we're talking about today. In the first generation Super FX chip, they added an internal clock speed diviner that halved the, the, the clock speed to 10.7 megahertz. So for the Mario chip, it was 10.7, but there were other FX chips and other FX games, and all of them were clocked at 21.4 megahertz. And technically, the, the Mario chip was too. They just divided it for whatever weird reason. Probably because they couldn't figure out how to use all 21 megahertz at the time. Shout out to Stunt Race FX. Oh my god, we're going to talk about that because I, I I had Stunt Race FX. I loved Stunt Race FX. Well, I will talk about other. We'll talk about other Super FX games, but yeah, definitely a shout out to Stunt Race FX. So, so the Super FX chip was designed and in place. The team at Argonaut got to work designing the game they wanted to make. They did all the programming for the game's engine, and so it fell to Nintendo to work on the character design and artwork. Now, for that, they turned to two very well-known video game designers. Now, the first one is the most famous of the famous, uh, Shigeru Miyamoto, creator of... I mean, he needs no introduction, but if you're a weird person who doesn't know video games and doesn't listen to very often, he's the creator of Mario and The Legend of Zelda, just to name a few of the things he's brought to the world. And the other was Katsuya Iguchi, who is best known for creating the Animal Crossing series, which we covered way back in episode 55. Rob, that was a long time ago. Uh, yeah, that, that that was, you know, uh, the 130 minus 55 weeks. Yes, I know. It's getting really weird looking back. The math checks out again. <laughs> Just checking. Okay. All right. It's getting really weird looking back in this catalog going, I know we did an Animal Crossing episode. It doesn't feel like that long ago. And then I hit it and it's episode 55 and I'm like, 
oh wow that was a long time ago so so nintendo wanted to make an arcade style shooter and argonaut not surprisingly suggested using spaceships because i mean what else have they made but spaceship games let's be honest actually that's not true uh, i didn't add it here but they also made the 1991 uh licensed tv video game days of thunder do you remember that movie oh yeah great movie days of our lives it's like i didn't know they had a game i freaking i had i loved that video game too the movie was great but the video game i I was one of the early video games i remember racing like that was actually like nascar style racing and i played the heck out of days of thunder as a video game for the nes it was also argonaut so Miyamoto character design, he stated that he wanted Star Fox to star animal characters because he didn't have any interest in making a conventional science fiction story. You know, one that had humans and robots and monsters or superheroes. That just, that wasn't his thing. Um, so Nintendo headquarters is about a 15 minute walk from a, a, a site he frequented called the Fushimi Inari Taisha Tasha, Tasha, Taisa. I always butcher these ones. Fushimi Inari Taisa Shrine, which is a shrine dedicated to um, basically their deity of foxes, fertility, rice, tea, and sake, also of agriculture and industry. Protect a lot of things, this, this deity, this god. Um, one of the most impressive parts of this shrine is is a row of Tori gates known as the Senban Tori. You know, Tori are those atypical, like when we think of Japanese things and you see that like red gate that's got like the curved top on it. You know what I'm talking about? Yep. I mean, that's pretty, I mean that, yeah, that's a Tori gate. Um, so basically in the history of the shrine, which goes back thousands of years, Wealthy merchants in the town would donate and and basically sponsor a new Tori going up. And so along the main part of this shrine, there are said to be around 1,000 Tori gates that you have to walk through uh, in its main path. And there's, uh, you know, of course, we always do, we always put my research on the show notes. So if you go to its Wikipedia page, which is going to be in our show notes which you can find at www.memorycardlane.com. You can find what the the uh, Senban Tori looks like, and it, it's a uh, you know it's pretty cool. But these gates, walking through these thousand gates, are actually the direct inspiration for the gates that you go through as you pilot your ship through the game. And if you were listening a moment ago, you'll learn that Inari was also the deity for foxes, right? Uh, so. The shrine had all these uh, Kitsune statues or fox statues, and you know Miyamoto would walk past them all the time. And this is where he got the inspiration to use a fox as the main character. Hence, we have Fox McCloud. And then for the rest of the team, there's some pretty fascinating stuff there too. He turned to Japanese folklore for the rest of the team. A bird and a hare are pretty common in Japanese folklore, so our bird Falco Lombardi. And our hair, Peppy here, Fox's partner. And Slippy Toad, everybody's favorite character. We all love Slippy Toad, don't we? Oh, so much. I demand Slippy and Smash. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So there was a staff member at Nintendo who always used a toad as a personal mascot. And Miyamoto just kind of liked that concept. Now, 
What's even more fascinating, as far as I'm concerned, are the bad guys. Here in the United States, we say that we fight like cats and dogs, right? Common saying? Yes. Sure. Cats and dogs, I'm not crazy. I've I know. heard a little bit. I'm not, I'm not crazy. So there, there is a similar expression in Japanese where people fight like dogs and monkeys because monkeys are common in Japan and they fight with the dogs. So our saying is fighting like cats and dogs. Their expression is fighting like dogs and monkeys. And so this is where basically the armies come from. The Cornarian army became dogs with General Pepper, a dog at the helm. And the enemy army was monkeys led by Andros, who is a monkey, which I just, I, I had no clue. I love that concept. I had no idea. It makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Makes perfect sense. And if it wasn't clear, the X-Wings are from, um, the R-Wings, rather, are the X-Wings from Star Wars. That's a that's a pretty direct, pretty direct uh, inspiration there. That, yeah, that influences. I know. <laughs> I know. I don't see it. What are you guys talking about? Oh, really? We should maybe sneak. We should may, maybe sit you in front of some Star Wars games then. Nah. Nah. So during development, Argonauts ended up sending two or three programmers to Japan. One of them was Dylan Cuthbert, the designer of X. And they were put up in a remote room uh, in the Nintendo offices because Nintendo didn't want foreigners having access to all their secrets because that was really something they hadn't done before. These three guys that were invited from the team at Argonauts were really some of the earliest, like, second party, third party people that were ever invited to Nintendo. They kind of predate even Rare. We talked in the past about Rare and Donkey Kong Country. Oh, yeah. Um, being in there, but this kind of predates that. So the first first real group of outsiders, I, I'm not sure if they were the absolute first, but they're one of the earliest put in a remote room. And there's this really funny story that they had that Miyamoto would uh, literally like he'd be frequent he would frequently come into the room to give them advice or solicit feedback. And he was a notorious chain smoker at the time. So they just remember him coming in and like giving them advice and like puff, 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 just smoking left and right in front of them. So that was that was the story that they they all had that stuck out to all the guys. Yeah, they made Star Fox. The game was revealed to the world at CES 1993 and it ended up releasing in Japan on February 21st, 93, a month later. Uh, and it hit the U.S. a month after that on March 26th and then Europe. I think June 5th or 6th. So it all it came out pretty quickly, which is weird for a game in this era too. There usually was a lot more time between them, but you had like one month, one month, one month. I guess it makes sense though, since this was a Western developer, they kind of got to make both versions at one time. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I can see that. We've all become used to, you know, games getting you know, kind of simultaneous global releases, you know, with just a few notable exceptions that, you know, back in the day, you, you wait six, nine, 12 months to get a game out of Japan. I know. I, I think about that every time I write one of these episodes and I have the alternating dates like that, how lucky we are to get a universal release nowadays for video games. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We're, and we're so accustomed to it, you know, we, we, we take it for granted, right? All right. So 
Star Fox. Star Fox, Star Fox, Star Fox. For those of you who don't know, it's a rail shooter in the third person and first person 3D perspective. You basically just navigate your aircraft, your space, your spacecraft called an R-Wing through environments uh, attacking enemies and picking up power-ups along the way. And yeah, that's that's I mean that's it in its most simple way. There's more to it. But I guess with that, let's talk about Star Fox. So I guess before I go into that, Ryan, did you ever get a chance to play Star Fox 2? I have not. Uh, That's one of my uh, blind spots I plan to get to. Uh, Did I see that that did get released sometime in the last few years? It did. It did. So let's talk about Star Fox 2 and it segues into Star Fox 64. We'll put this all together We'll put this all together, and then we'll we'll talk about our own experience with Star Fox. So, immediately after they released Star Fox, they started working on Star Fox 2. It, it, it takes a lot of the same inspiration. They improved on some things they wanted to do, but it's, it's largely the same game, right? The team at Argonaut did it, and Nintendo did it, and basically what, ha- what had happened was, my favorite stories always start with that, right? Indeed they do. By the time they got it about... 95 98% complete. Argonauts took it to Nintendo and said, "Hey, we're we're done with this. Do you want to release it?" Nintendo basically was in this time period where they were working on the Nintendo 64 and they said, "You know what? What we really want is there to be a very clear distinction between the Nintendo 64 era and the Super Nintendo era." And they felt that all the what the the work and the presentation of Star Fox 2 would have muddied the waters between the two. So despite the fact that the game was, I mean, it was done. It's not an exaggeration. It was done. All they had to do was play testing and localization. That's all they had to do left in the game. Uh, Nintendo said, nah, we're going to cancel this and we're going to look forward to the Nintendo 64. And so the game, they, they actually did finish it. They, they did the playtesting, they did the localization, and then they shelved it. It never saw the light of day until the Super Nintendo Classic console came out. The, the little re-releases they were doing that had all the built-in games, that's where they re-released Star Fox 2. It's on the Classic console. Now... Well, wouldn't that not be a re-release? That would be a release? It's a release. You're correct. Mm-hmm. You are very correct. So what Nintendo did do, though is they looked ahead to the Nintendo 64 and they started work on Star Fox 64. And Star Fox 64 is basically um, about 10% of the original game, 60% of Star Fox 2, and then the rest of 30% is content that they basically made for Star Fox 64 itself. So Star Fox 64 is very much the same game as Star Fox and Star Fox 2, because they all basically were piggybacked off one another. Because Star Fox 2 was developed mostly off of Star Fox. Does that make sense? Absolutely it does, yeah. So in a lot of ways, we've all played the same game, is kind of the point. They have the same storyline, they have the same gameplay. The one you guys have done looks very different than the one I've done. But honestly, the, the, the line between... Um, the line between Star Fox, Star Fox 2, and Star Fox 64, it, it, I mean, it's it really doesn't exist because they're largely 
I mean, they might as well be the same game. Not that that's weird for a video game franchise to just, you know, piggyback off something and call it a new number. I mean, that was pretty common back then. But it's, you know, I think it's funny because this is a very popular series. And this is why I asked the question about the, the Smash Brothers characters. This is a really popular series, super popular series. And it, it, there's what, six games in the main series? Isn't that it? There's, I think there's only six of them. And yeah, in the Smash series? No, in, in Star Fox. One, two, 64. There's Command. There's Zero. Zero. 3D is a remake of Star Fox here. I don't know if you want to count that as its own. You know, it wasn't it's just called Star Fox 64 3D for the 3DS. Uh, there's also Star Fox Assault. That's, yeah. I mean, so there's just not... What about Star Fox Adventures? Are we not counting that? Yeah, that's the other one. That's the oh. one I couldn't think of. That's yeah. more of a dinosaur planet game. Well, I mean, it's still a Star Fox game in yeah. reality, even if it's just a skinned dinosaur game with Star Fox in it for some reason, you know. All right, so Star Fox, Star Fox, Star Fox. Ryan, what do you remember? You said you played the ever-living crap out of this game. What do I remember? Yeah, what do you remember? Three words. Okay, make that four <laughs> words. Four words. <laughs> I knew it. Do a barrel roll. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good old Slippy. Okay, so I I remember the marketing hype behind that game as it was coming out because that was coming out with a, you know, well-psyched up accessory, I believe. So the budget for uh, Star Fox... It was about the marketing budget was about fifteen million dollars, which, I mean, in nineteen ninety three money was mm-hmm. a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now, but you know, perspective. So you're right. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere, and the Super FX chip was like the wave of the future. You know, I Rob, what do you you said you were a fan? You're, are you a fan of this game? What do you like? Well, obviously, I've never played the original. Right. I didn't play two either. I started and most of my time was played in uh, Star Fox 64. And um, it's easily one of my most played 64 games. Um, I can't tell you how to do every secret mission at this point. I remember a few of them. um, But I, I know that I spent many, many times trying to find the alternate paths to get to the secret levels um and just playing the hell out of this game i i enjoyed it and it's kind of funny looking and seeing because you know my thing is with these games that i don't play i normally go and watch speed runs or just playthroughs of them and uh it's it's insane how much the original was built in on six four sixty four. i mean i told you as i was watching them it's the same damn game i mean it, it pretty much is the same game Oh, no, absolutely. I agree 100% with you. After watching that, it's the same. It's just 64 was a little fancier and had some extra levels. Did did we beat it? Let me ask you that. I don't know. I can never remember playing through the entire thing, to be honest with you. Many, many times, yes. Yeah. Ryan, how about you? The normal and alternate endings. There's alternate endings? I mean, an alternate boss fight at the end, yeah. 
in terms of yeah, Star Fox sixty four, you know, I, I I beat that you know hundreds of times, you know, and then and, and, and just the way those missions are designed, right? It, it encourages you to replay it and try different routes through the planets on sixty four. Um, yeah, certainly, you know, remember flipping through, you know, you know, getting the that monthly N- Nintendo Power magazine or whatever the subscription of the day was, and hoping there's you know some more hints in in that month's issue. And yeah, played it. I probably beat it, you know, dozens of times for sure. I don't know if I ever beat the original, but I definitely remember like Nintendo Power and other fit guides, you know, telling about the alternate path. Cause that, I mean, the original one is pre like pre internet, you know, so we didn't have any other way to learn. It was really like word of mouth in those magazines for how we learned that there were alternate paths. I think I remember a friend who had like a, a, a drawing on a piece of paper where they tried to map out, map it out. Now you can just go get a picture of it online, like snap your finger. But back then we had to result to pen and paper, pencil and paper, not even pen, not even pen. No one even used pen back then. We chiseled it into stone. Yeah. I spent hours trying to unlock James McCloud is a playable character. Turns Wait. out that's just a rumor. Okay. I was about to say, like, hold on, don't blow my mind anymore. <laughs> no. It's like, oh, this is uh yeah, just a huge waste of my time. Thanks. Oh my god. But I mean, what do you let's start with you, Ryan. What do you like about what what do you what what's appealing to you about Star Fox? A uh, couple things. The the challenge it, it it threads the needle between, you know, you know, it being too, you know, you know, it's not too difficult. Uh, you know, it's got the different paths where you can you know, kind of self select into you know more difficult levels, and so it it's you know, you know, kind of works with you to figure out what works best for individual people. Um, you know, replayability was was great, and uh, you know, at the time the graphics, right? Yeah, for real. Yeah, those. I mean, even on sixty four, that was when Polygon was just becoming a thing, and it just fit. It fit the theme of the sixty four so 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 well. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, the the people who came up with the acronym for for the Mario chip mm-hmm. did eventually get fired. Uh, so that's why all of the early Nintendo 64 games are Pilot Wing 64, Star Fox 64, <laughs> Super Mario 64. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's it was a marketing venture. They really wanted you to have to say 64, so when you're talking about a game, you want to get the console. <laughs> yeah, but that acronym team was like, you know, just feet up on the table. What kind of game you got coming out? Oh, well... That's Pilot Wings. 64. <laughs> no, I know. There was everything. Rob, why why Star Fox for you? You're a fan. What do you like? Honestly, a lot of the same things Ryan said. I mean, it's the replayability was there because you had the different routes in game. And depending on what kind of mood you're in when you wanted to play it, you could decide, hey, do I want to take the easy route and just hit all the easy levels. Do I want to find the secret levels and, you know, go through the lava and find the spaceship with the pyramid and um, just 
continuing to find all these different secrets and obviously the more secret levels were a lot more difficult so it was how many like can i continuously get to this and beat it and win the game um so it was just one of those games that i first started out liking to challenge myself with because you know you could play it simply and just get through it or you could force yourself to have a real good challenge with it and um, I, I enjoyed it a lot and I thought it played well. And I mean, I even enjoyed the graphics. I mean, I never thought I started playing it young enough that it was still pretty good graphics for the time. Um, cause I started playing this with a friend before I got my own 64 and I, it's just one of those games that growing up, we played the hell out of. And ever since I've loved the Star Fox series. Well said, well, the super FX chip was used in other games as ryan already alluded to ryan do you actually know how many other games they use the fx chip in take a guess uh, i mean I, I can't take a guess because i i happened to to, to look at it but you know, <laughs> prior prior to that i would have guessed you know like six to twelve something like that <laughs> but you know the number is lucky number seven now maybe i'm gonna guess that it's seven it's seven yeah, look at me go. Woo! Edit that so I said it first. <laughs> Wait, it's seven? It's seven? So those games were Dirt Racer, Dirt Track FX, Stunt, Ra- Stunt Race FX slash Wild, Wild Tracks, uh, Vortex, Doom, Winter Gold, and Super Mario World 2 Yoshi's Island. Now, we owned two of those, which were Stunt Race FX and Super Mario World 2. So let's go back to Stunt Race FX. <laughs> Ryan, you obviously were a fan. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's funny because my memories are very fuzzy about that, but I, I must have rented that, you know, you know so, yeah. but, you know, f- for your younger listeners, back in the day, we had <laughs> to go to a physical store to rent a physical copy of a game. Don't forget, you could also rent the console if you didn't have one. <sighs> yes, that's right. And unfortunately, sometimes... You know, there wasn't a uh, Super Mario World 2 uh, to rent. And you're just like, well, what's this game? It looks a little goofy. Stunt Race FX? I'll give it a try. And it's like, okay, this is pretty legit. It was very goofy. Yeah. It was very goofy. I think you could, like, I know it was, like, dirt tracks and stuff like that. But I vaguely remember you being able to, like, extend the legs of your car to drive over things. Uh yeah. I, Will we be uh, talking about stunt race next week? <laughs> no, no. Oh, okay. No, no. I doubt I could pull up enough on stunt race. But Super Mario World Two, we had Super Mario World Two. Super Mario World Two is um, mm, legit. I, legit. Yeah. The FX chip was. I mean, it's not a 3D game. It's a 3D game, but it's it the in the case of it's not a polygon 3D game like the rest of these FX um, games. In the case of Super Mario World 2, that FX chip was used to accelerate its 2D graphics. They could do rotation and scaling um, and all sorts of fascinating things with the chip that made Super Mario World 2 a... I mean, that was a pretty badass game. I loved it. I'm not in love with it the way... I mean, we you know, we've done an episode on it. So Super Mario World 1 is one of my, one of my absolute favorite games in hindsight. Um... I wasn't in love with two the same way I was in one, but that didn't make it not a good game, you know? So. Yeah. Marvel two was legit. Like if you maybe tone down or change the, change the sound file 
for crying baby Mario. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. it, it becomes a fa- you know top ten all yeah. time. Uh, but oh man. Yeah, for sure. That crying. I know. That gives me flashbacks. I know. Well, <laughs> that's, that's exactly what ruined it for me. The whole concept of Yoshi's Island. So baby Mario. Ugh. But I I do remember like in hindsight knowing what the FX chip does and the rotations of scaling like. I get it now because it did a lot of cool things with the, with the with the enemies and stuff. So, well, the team at Argonaut, you know, with the seeds that they started planting here at the Super FX chip, that led them to create something even bigger. Um, you know, they were doing some really interesting game development with with what they did with the Super FX chip. Eventually, they got into like three D modeling and stuff like that. But at some point, they decided that there was more value in letting other people use their technology as opposed to them only using it for Argonaut projects. So they spun off what they learned in chip making and their little chip making endeavor into its own company. Now, nowadays, there are... So the company is called Arc International. And they arc designs microcontrollers that are used in I, let me put it to you this way. In 2020, they shipped 1.5 billion products with arc processors in them. They include things like digital storage, so they might be the little low microprocessor or that, that powers up your flash drive or your hard drive. They could be digital home, so things like your Alexa or your your light, you know, your digital light bulbs. Mobile automotive, they may be powering up your little display on your dashboard and many other devices in what we call the Internet of Things. So if you have a device that connects to the Internet, it could have a little microprocessor that's based on that's made with an ARC processor. And the ARC processors are basically what I mean, the Super FX is where they started and they, they turned it into this. I mean, that's a huge company now, actually. Arc International doesn't exist. They were bought out by another company, but just this novel concept that they went from the Super FX chip to these little microprocessors that are in like everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, the FX chip was just the small stepping stone they needed to get to creating the world of tomorrow. Well, I mean, an Arc. So, so Arc isn't as popular. There's two two major types of microprocessors, right? There's Arms and Arcs, and Arms are definitely the major one nowadays. You know, I think. If Arc does 1.5 billion, ARMs are in like 200 billion type products or something like that. I mean, still try to scoff at 1.5 billion dollars. I, I know. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's still a, a pretty big deal. Um, and it's cool that the Super FX chip is where it all started, you know? Um, so they split off their chip technology into Arc and they kept their game technology. So Argonaut grew. And like many other companies that grow, it split itself off as we have with Arc, and also snatched up smaller companies. One of the companies they bought was a company called Just Add Monsters. Uh, they bought them out in September of 2000. Um, that team began working on a game called Kung Fu Story, and they began to shop it around. But as they got further into development, Argonaut started to run into some financial trouble, and they couldn't find any publishers that wanted to assume the financial risk of taking out a game for a failing company. So like so many other companies that we talk about that are in this exact situation, 
they ended up having to reestablish themselves as another company and they sold themselves as that company to Sony to finish this project. Now that ended up working out for them. The company that they formed is actually called Ninja Theory and that project became Heavenly Sword. Now, Rob, we've covered Ninja Theory before. Uh, they made your absolute favorite, favorite Devil May Cry game, you know, DMC Devil May Cry. I know how much that's your favorite in the series. Oh, yes. That is why that name struck such a resounding, <laughs> pleasant chord with my name, with my ears. Just, I heard it and it was just, why does that sound so familiar and why does it bring this feeling to me? And yes, that is, that is why. Yeah, because you love DMC Devil May Cry. It's the best Devil May Cry uh, out of the whole series. Sure, so, Dave. The, the, and the, and you're always right. Well, yeah, I am always right. We played it. We played it in an earlier episode. They also created a really excellent game called Enslaved and Odyssey to the West, which I know, Rob, you haven't played. Ryan, do you have any familiarity with Enslaved? Not directly, no. Oh, it's an excellent game. Highly recommended if you if you ever get a chance ever ever get a chance tell me about it i don't know how to tell you about it to be honest with you it's a um action platformer with a really great story that's the best way to put it it's kind of like um it's kind of like an uncharted but with fantasy characters um and a really great story actually so it's it's a it's a phenomenal game highly recommended um Eventually, Ninja Theory was able to break away from Sony. They started making games in what they called AAA indie titles. That's what they called them. Uh, the most well-known of recent is Hellblade, Senua's Sacrifice. I'm pretty sure that one game of the year, the year it came out, didn't it? Isn't that the, the thing that year? Anyone play that, either of you? Nope. Never heard of it, actually, surprisingly. Really? Yeah, no. Ryan, have you at least heard of Hellblade? I, I've certainly heard of it. It, it you know, I, I'm a pretty big uh, Game Pass guy, and so I'm, I'm familiar with it through through Game Pass. That, That's that a Game Pass. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. that leads me to my next part. So a couple of years ago, uh, they were actually bought out by Microsoft, who felt that they were their games were a good fit for Game Pass. So now they're part of the Xbox Game Studios. Um, Ninja Theory is making actually they're making hellblade 2 right now that's what they're working on the first one was super popular really also great game if you've never had a chance really well known for uh amazingly accurate depiction of mental illness really creepy game too it has really great sound design so if you ever go play for it um play it with really good headphones because the main character has i don't think this is a spoiler uh schizophrenia and hears voices, so you hear voices, and Ooh. it's really fucking great, actually. Nice. It is great. I mean, like, that is an excellent, excellent game. So, um, so yeah, so Argonaut uh, snatched up Just Add Monsters. They spun that off, um, reestablished themselves as Ninja Theory, and then now they're Ninja Theory with Game Pass Studios. Um, Argonaut ended up folding completely in 2004, um, Many of its employees left. Two of them founded Rocksteady Studios and hired a ton of previous Argonaut employees. And in case you don't know Rocksteady Studios, they are best known for the Batman Arkham series. A lot of 
lot of uh, pedigree here, you know? Absolutely. A lot of pedigree here. Uh, Jez San is actually still a non-executive director for Ninja Theory. In 2005, he founded an online poker company called PKR. It lasted until about 2017 when it folded. In 2008, he founded a mobile application developer named Origin 8 that doesn't exist anymore. And most recently, in 2017, he founded a company called Fun Fair Technologies. Maybe not found or he's part of it. But basically, uh, I went to their website. They're a, ga- they're a company that makes games or experiments with technology using blockchain, which you all know. I mean, if Ryan, you may not know. I think that's a stupid ass concept. So, oh, it's the latest craze. I know. And hey, I've got some NFTs that I'm here to uh, to hawk. <laughs> okay. Uh, and lastly, Dylan, Dylan Cuthbert, the guy who made the X, the guy X, the guy who said X is going to give it to you. Um, he eventually founded Q Games, um, which not only did Q Games work on the later Star Fox games, they actually did Star Fox Command and Star Fox 64 3D, um, but that company is best known for creating the Pixel Junk series of games. I've never played a Pixel Junk. Have either of you? No. Not, what, what is Pixel Junk? It's a Sony-specific... That's on the PlayStation yeah. consoles, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that would explain it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a Sony-specific series. Pixel Junk, they're just cute little characters, and... I don't have. I, I can't say I've never played a Pixel Junk game, but I haven't played one enough for it to have stuck with me in any way, shape, or form. So, so yeah, that's pretty much Star Fox, um, inspired by a shrine and Japanese folklore characters, and, um, and and years in the making, as early as the NES era, years in the making, really, which is really fascinating. So, earlier when you said. The name Dylan Cuth, uh, is it, uh, Cuth, 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 yeah, Cuthbert. That name just like it, it struck a chord, and it's like well, I I don't remember why I know that name, but but now after talking through it, yeah. Um, Star, later Star Fox games. Yeah. Yeah, honestly, same. I, that when you first said Cuthbert, I was like, I know I've read that. Why? Like, why? Why is that so familiar to me? It's kind of shocked. <laughs> He's also, like, if you're trying to look up the history of Star Fox, he's the most vocal guy. Um, he was one of the three guys that was sent to the you know Nintendo Studios and had to make this game in that isolated room. And, you know, he made that Game Boy demo that basically sold, sold Argonaut games to Nintendo. And, I mean, really, his hand is in this entire thing. Um, and, and pretty much every news story including the ones, you know, that we're going to be posting our show notes. All the news stories are interviews of him. Um, and a lot of them mostly when the later games came out. They're like, oh, tell us about how you got involved with Star Fox. And he's like, well, I was there in the beginning. Here's some fun stuff you you never knew. Like, Miyamoto was a chain smoker, you know? So. Yeah, yeah. Fun, fun little facts about him like that, you know? You know. Or we had we had to work in an isolated room for like four months. And actually, just a side note, uh, not really a side note, but related to that. So Q Games is in Japan. Those three guys were there for so long, they never ended up leaving. They never let them out of that room. They never let them out of that room. No, no, no. They they're they're just they're still there making games to this day. So, uh, yeah, still there making games to this day. Thank God for Grubhub. Thank God for Grubhub. 
Well, there are some fascinating things about today's episode, like the Tory Gates and um, the Inari Shrine. So if you want to check them out, I'm going to post all my research and my show notes. And of course, you can find that on our website at www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, you can find calendars that include all of our upcoming episodes and you can look back at, you know, the, the previous episodes, like Dave said, you can see some pictures of Dave and I, some little blurbage about Dave and not me. Uh, and you can also find links to our social meteors. Dave, what planet are you on? I'm on various platforms as David is wrong or where, I mean, cause it's the truth. I'm wrong. Don't trust a word I said. Rob, what about you? I am on twitch.tv forward slash F-A-T-B-O-I-R-I-P-Z. And Ryan, you're just you. You just exist in the real world, right? You'll never find me. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. It's sad, really, because I really enjoy spending time with you, but it's the truth. No, absolutely. If you want to find me, uh, uh, bring up the local Merriam-Webster dictionary, uh, flip it to nobody, and I'm right after that. You know... You know, what's funny is that, you know, one of my good friends, their screen name is nobody. So, I mean, that doesn't necessarily work. You just, you just sold him up the river. <laughs> Oops. Oops. Sorry. Oops. Not sorry. Yeah, well, no, he's after nobody. Oh, after nobody. Okay. Don't look for nobody. Look for after nobody. All right, ladies and gentlemen, each week we tell you the story about one game relevant or console or technology. It's just one thing relevant to the current week of gaming history. While doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the world, something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. Apparently, I can't talk today. You know, one of the best parts about doing this podcast week in and week out is that we learn things, because when you teach people things, you always learn things. Never forget that. When you teach, you learn. It's a cycle, and a glorious one at that, one that we're very, very thankful to be a part of. As part of our commitment to that cycle... We go round table. We like to talk about what we learned today. So our greatest takeaways. So Ryan, you're our guest today. What did you learn today? What is your biggest takeaway from today's episode? I mean, honestly, Dylan Cuthbert's obsession with single letters. Game X, Q Games, not very creative in the naming department. <laughs> Definitely not the game guy who added 64, though. That's one. That's one character too many. Yeah, that's over the top. Yeah, that's he can't possibly be that guy. One one too many. So fair enough. Uh Dylan Cuthbert and one letter game. Well, you know what's I don't think there's anything else in his catalog uh that would land credence to that, but it would be phenomenal if there was not yet. Not yet? Okay. Oh, when you search him on uh the wikis, all it comes with is q games he's not he doesn't even get his own entry uh the entry for him is the entry for q games so um any other one title games oh they made xscape in 2010 (laughs) (laughs) oh man the rest of the letter x followed by cape no scape like RuneScape. Oh, oh, I thought it was Xscape. Uh, actually, it's known as X Returns to Japan, so I have no... I, I'm i guessing it's probably a sequel to uh, X. Oh, there you go. It's a sequel to the 1992 Japan-only Game Boy title, X. So. Yeah, I would have thought it would be titled Y. Oh. 
That's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, what else does Q Games make? They've made uh, Pixel Junk Shooter, Pixel Junk Shooter 2, Pixel Junk 4AM. I don't even want that. That sounds like a really nasty Snapchat. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pixel Junk Monsters, Pixel Junk Eden, Pixel Junk Raiders, and they've been making a game called The Tomorrow Children. I don't know what that is. It's a game they're working on. It's described as a mix of Minecraft-esque collaborative building, social economics, and a Soviet Union-themed post-apocalyptic dystopia. Okay. <laughs> I have to check this out now. They're... Okay. All right. Anyway. 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 Okay. So, Ryan. Dylan Cuthbert. That's what he learned. Rob, what did you learn today? Uh, That... The R-Wing was inspired by the X-Wing. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Fantastic. Bravo. Uh, yeah. That's it. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't know, you didn't know. That's okay. There's nothing. I mean, there. hey, I, I thought it was unique. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, like, it makes sense. Like, they, the wings close up when they zoom. But, like, I don't know. I just never really put two and two together. Hold but on. other than that, you know, I think it's the, the Tory Gates is a really cool. Uh, oh, if you see a picture of the Tory Gates, you'll get it. They're super cool. So. Uh, now that you say that, like, I've seen the Tory Gates, so I know, like, that's immediately, boom, damn, like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. And obviously, Kitsune's, you know, foxes are awesome. So, you know, yep. it's just awesome to hear that, hey, you know, the shrine of Kitsune. I just realized the ships are R wings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but unfortunately, they're spelled A-R-Wing. Uh, so I'm guessing that Dylan didn't have any any uh, any say in, in the naming conventions. So. Well, no, they asked their pirate friend. Oh, <laughs> yeah. They thought it. they said they needed a pilot, but, you know. <laughs> they went with the pirate instead, so R-Wing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, let's see. I really was fascinated by where the characters came from. I didn't, I honestly, I'd never heard the expression about fighting like dogs and monkeys. And for whatever reason, that was the single most fascinating thing to me. The fact that he took that idiom and he turned it into literally like those are the two fighting armies. Uh, I just think that's really cool personally. So yeah, that's it. That's what I got. And that's Star Fox. We did it, boys. We did it. Yay. All right. Well, before I take it out of here and and uh, take it into next week, um, start with you, Ryan. Is there anything you want to add to today's episode? Any last words? What do you got for the audience? Somebody once. Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. Well, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure, Jens. It's always a pleasure. It's definitely always a pleasure. So I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate you telling us about your Star Fox experience. I, I I'm, I definitely wasn't as into this as, as you guys were. I, I, I'm one of those that definitely spent more time playing these characters in Smash Brothers than in Star Fox itself. I own a VHS copy of the Star Fox 64 promotional VHS. That's good. I still have it. I don't know why. Please help. No, 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 no. Things like that are great. I don't remember when we talked about it, but I have a VHS called How to Win at Video Games, which is 
from the NES era and it had games like how to win, like how to finish Metal Gear and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I think there was another game that I can't recall right now. So. Well, Dave, based on your abilities, it's clear to me you've never watched that even yeah, once. No, yeah. I haven't finished either of those games, so There's you're right. For sure. Yeah, you're so right. Ah, oh, God, it was narrated by a funny guy, funny name guy too. I can't remember. Gilbert Gottfried? No, 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 no. I was some uh, video no, game I mean, champion incredible. with a funny name. I can't remember it now. Well, I, it's, on, it's on YouTube. Just YouTube How to Win at Video Games, NES, VHS, or something like that. So, Rob, what would you like to add to today's episode? Well, Dave, as always, I do want to take a quick moment to say thank you to everyone for listening. It means the world to us. We're having a fun ride, and we hope that you're enjoying the ride along with us. And also, a big thank you to Ryan for joining us. It's awesome getting to hang out with you again, man. Rock and roll. Well, on that note, let's look forward to next week. So next week, we're going to be learning about a genre of video games that really simply aren't for everyone. Originally a subgenre of educational games, typing games have evolved beyond their original purpose as typing tutors. As part of our story, we'll learn about the history of typing games, including the Mavis Beacon series, Typing of the Dead, The Texorcist, and more. So stick around and join us as we work on increasing our words per minute on yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Skibidin' doop bop 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 doo bow.